I need a job. I need a job. This marathon is the hardest thing I've ever done. Mile 70 broke me. down welcome to grit true stories that matter grit is a weekly podcast about stories the contemporary personal narrative kind of story and the people that craft and tell them now some weeks a storyteller will join me here on the podcast tell one of their stories then together we will break it down other weeks i have a conversation with a stellar teller about the art and craft of the personal narrative story and yet other weeks like this week we feature stories from our myriad events this week more Truologues, two of them from Deja True. Deja True is the name of the event. And Truolog is the form. Maybe not the greatest names ever, but it's what we've got for now. Now, why do we do all of this? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories. And also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories, personal stories, grit stories. This week, we've got two truologues around the theme of hard truths. The first one is from Corey May and Kat Dean. The second is from Andrew Shelfo and Emily Pitts. Now, you can check the show notes for upcoming workshops and events, including the 99 Second Story Slam and the Mental Health Happiest Hour, which is an open mic. And if you can help us out, if you like the podcast, let people know about it. Share with others on social media. And if you listen on Apple, you can rate and review it. All of those things really help. We're really appreciated. Okay, storytellers, let's dive in. I need a job. I need a job. I've just moved from Washington, D.C., Chocolate City, to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, the Vanilla Village. Population. 8,900. My wife, five kids and I have diversified and increased the population by seven. I've moved from retail management to God knows what. It's a little scary, but I can sell anything. I've been working in Dr. Green's pain management clinic as a temp for about three months now. I like it here. Everybody's really nice and the job is super easy. So when he says he plans to hire this position out permanently, I decided I think I'm gonna apply. I think I'd like to have this job. The classifieds look promising. It's time for the resume. The watermark is lined up. My high school and college diplomas are on there as is my work with the US Senate. Management experience, check. References, all good. Time to get this taken care of and you know, it might be overkill, but I need a job. He's been interviewing for several weeks now. And so far, I have not seen a single person who I think is a better candidate than me. And, and I've been here for, for several months, so they like me already. They know I can do it. I'm feeling really good about my chances of getting this job. Until this morning, a woman named Carrie walks in the front door and I can see immediately she is dressed very professionally. And I snoop through her resume while she's waiting to talk to Dr. Green. And I can already tell my, my goose is cooked. I don't have a chance. Her education is more relevant. And she just left a job in another city as the assistant manager of a pain management clinic. He would have to be out of his mind to hire me. 
when she's here to apply. So I guess I still need a job. They called me in. I can do this job. I can sell cars. He looks stunned as I walk in in my suit and smile, shake his hand and hand him my resume. He looks at it briefly and pushes it toward me. I push it back. He won't make eye contact. Mr. May, you're overqualified. Man, I have to feed my family. Well, we're concerned that if we train you, you'll move on. Here we go again. I have bills to pay. He's beginning to squirm and sweat. Our customers won't buy a car from someone like you. Someone like me? He said it. He said it without saying it. The interview process is over and Dr. Green walks up to my desk and he's smiling. And he leans in and he says, so would you like the job? I mean, oh my God, yes, I want the job. I, I tell him, but... I was so sure you were going to give that job to that woman, Carrie, because, I mean, she seemed pretty awesome. And I look and I see that Dr. Green's not smiling anymore. He's just kind of glowering at me. And he says, but I want you for the job. Do you want it or not? But, I mean, yes, I want the job. But she must have said something so stupid in her interview that you didn't pick her. Because, I mean, I looked at her resume and, and about now I, I realize it. not only is he not smiling anymore, but he's looking at me out of the corner of his eye, which everybody in the office knows he's about to go off on somebody. In fact, everybody in the office has disappeared. They don't seem to want to witness what might happen next. And then he leans in again and says, I don't think my clientele would be comfortable with a black person working in my office. Do you want the job or not? He said it out loud. He said, this is not some stupid redneck screaming the N-word out of the back of a pickup truck. This is an educated man, a doctor. I just stand there and I, I can't seem to formulate words, which is just fine because I don't think I could get any words past my throat if I could think of any. I just stand there staring at him for a minute. I'll drive by there on Monday. I guarantee you the hire won't look like me. And you know what? I still need a job. Finally, I find my voice and I just shake my head and say, no, I don't want the job. And I'm shaking. And I turn to walk back to my desk. And I know in my heart that on Monday, some other woman was going to be sitting at this desk. She was going to be white. She wasn't going to be me. And I guess I still need a job. Thank you, Mr. Corey Thomas May and Ms. Kat Dean. Next up, Andrew Shelfo and Emily Pitts. I'm waiting for dawn at the starting line of the 2015 Philadelphia Marathon, my fourth last marathon. I've already done the hard part, which is I've made it through training without hurting myself. Now all I have to do is run 26.2 miles to the finish line. When I was younger, before I started running, I had a friend whose stepfather was a prolific marathoner. He would run all the time. And I used to wonder, what does he think about when he's running? I posed that question to my friend and he looked at me and he said, what doesn't he think about? I get that now as I'm in mile six and my thoughts turn to beer. Not, not a beer that I'm going to have after the race, but how much I really want a beer right now. And while I think about the beer, I also can't help but think that this marathon is the hardest thing I've ever done. Mile 70 broke me. I was going 
uphill in the wind with no snacks. I didn't hate this 100 mile bike ride, but I was choosing not to hate it about every eight minutes. So I had resorted to good old fashioned gaslighting. Is this the worst thing you've ever done? No. Is this the hardest thing you've ever done? No. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? And when I asked myself that question, it was like a gray staticky mist took over my brain and clouded out all ability to think. I didn't know what the worst thing that ever happened to me was, or rather I did, and my mind wasn't allowing me to go there. But the feelings of panic and anxiety that were cropping up were very, very real. I forced myself to keep pedaling as I started to cry without tears and whimper. Because this isn't the hardest or the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And if it's not the hardest and worst thing that's ever happened to me, then I can do it. I'm running past the frat houses at Drexel University now. And I'm thinking about college. I'm thinking about my first year of teaching undergraduates. When I was a graduate student who was really just three months removed from being an undergraduate himself. I had a student in my class who clearly did not belong in college. He was a nice kid, but he didn't have the skills that he needed. He, he was failing in my basic English skills course. They gave me a syllabus to copy and a teacher's edition of a textbook, and they pointed me to a classroom and they said, good luck. They didn't tell me how to take care of kids who didn't belong. I knew how to take attendance. I figured out how to put together a lesson plan, but I just didn't have the skills that I needed. I could grade with the fury of a graduate student who'd been graded himself for the past 16 years, but I had no idea how to help out a student who wasn't cut out for college. I wanted to be a teacher. That's why I was doing this. And teaching was also part of my financial aid, and I needed that too. I wanted my students to like me, and I envisioned myself as the amalgamation of all the best teachers that I ever had but I didn't know how to make this kid a better student. I could mark all of his errors in his essays with my red pen, but I didn't know how to help him. All my energy was gone. I was completely depleted. It was mile 85. I was probably not going to make it to the finish line on time. Plus, it felt like there was something in me undealt with that I couldn't face or allow myself to feel. But slowly, it began to surface. This feeling of panic and anxiety was the same feeling I'd experienced six years before when I was a first year teacher in a high poverty school. At that point, I had 35th graders in one room all day long. And the things I was dealing with was so far out of my frame of reference, I didn't know what to do. There were parents on pr- in prison and on drugs, children with learning disabilities, children who didn't speak English, and then a family torn apart by suicide. I was maxed out, and I was still trying to show up every day with engaging lessons and being a pleasant person, but it was taking a toll. I wasn't able to be the person who I wanted to be. It felt like going uphill in the wind without snacks. I just knew that I couldn't quit. I couldn't give up, and that pain of feeling like I was ruining children's lives, screwing up their education, I had shoved that down deep inside me, and now I just have to keep going like I did back then. Back then it was 180 days. Today it's just 100 miles. I'm 85 in. It makes this bike ride seem like a walk in the park. 
even though it's just before 9 a.m. on a Sunday, the fraternity guys are handing out beers to interested runners. I take one. I tell myself it's just one beer. Plus, it's really just it's energy. And, and I really need it at this point because I need something to shake up what's become a terrible day of running. I'm hoping the beer will do the trick. At mile 22, I accept a bag of Swedish fish from a four-year-old who's out supporting the racers with her mother. That helps too. But what helps the most is seeing the finish line, finally. When I cross the finish line, a volunteer puts the finisher's medal around my neck and she gives me a big smile. In a few days, I'll be in the doctor's office getting my knee drained because it didn't like the pounding of 26.2 miles. And I'll have a scar from where she plunged in the needle. But today I think about all the people who helped me. The race volunteers, the marshals, the fraternity boys, the little girl with the fish. I couldn't have done it without them. And I think about that student. I drowned his ideas in red ink and I circled the F bubble on his official grade sheet. I told him what was wrong, but I didn't tell him how to fix it. And I never saw him again. I think about that student and I know that's the hardest thing I've ever done. This SAG vehicle passes me around mile 90. It's not the first time. We've been playing leapfrog for the last 10 miles. And inside there is a Santa Claus-esque driver with a radio. And so now everybody knows who's supporting this bike ride, that there's a lagging rider on the course who's not going to finish on time. It gets more embarrassing when he actually pulls me over to tell me that he has to stay on the course with me until I make it to the finish line. Or I could just put my bike in his vehicle and he can drive me there. But I can't give up. That thing in me will not let go. And I say, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to stay with me until I finish this bike ride, which he has to. So he does. And I keep clutching my handlebars, chanting to myself, this is not the worst thing that's ever happened to you. This is not the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Teaching was the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And that you had an audience of 30. Right now, you only have an audience of one. It will be okay. An hour later, I pull into the finish line. The SAG driver waves and leaves, and I get my bike into the, my car. But success doesn't feel good. Success feels really, really shitty. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Corey Thomas May in Iowa, Kat Dean in North Carolina, Andrew Shelfo in Massachusetts, and Emily Pitts in Washington. Our feature, Truelog Storytellers. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including the 99-second Story Slam Season 5, Slam Number 3, and the Mental Health Happyish Hour, which is an open Mike, and if you can help us out, rate and review this podcast. If you listen on Apple, I really appreciate that. That is all for episode number 57. Boom.